This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I am very pleased to have you with me today. And speaking of today, it is the final day that you can submit a nomination to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. I was on their Twitter and I got a reminder, June 30th is the final day. So if there is someone that you know who you think merits the title of inductee to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, just head over to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame Twitter page, and that's at CDNMHF, and you'll see a tweet that says, tomorrow is the last day to nominate someone for CMHF. Last call. So that is today. So again, if there's someone you know that you think is deserving of that title, visit Canadian Mining Hall of Fame's Twitter page and send that name. It's feeling pretty good out there right now. I mean, there are concerns about the second wave, and we're going to have a few stories that we're going to get into in the news section. I think if you're a mining executive, I think that's probably been your top concern. Uh, That's just my sense of things. Sort of like, again, the world can start to move forward and think twice and, okay, we don't need to be maybe quite as careful as sort of the psychology. A lot of people are removing their masks, and this is a huge debate. And it's not just on the right. I was at a uh, an art event, and people were like, you're buying into that? You're buying into the masks? So <laughs> the masks, the right turns into the left at a certain point. So who knew that the masks would, uh, both sides of the political spectrum, have their views on it, and they surprisingly overlap in certain areas. Yeah, so I think if you're a mining executive today, your main concern is keeping your mine from getting infected. And we're going to see a few stories of mines that have had to shut down. And one is Cadelco in Chile, and that is a major operation. So this isn't a small thing. We're also going to revisit Rio Tinto. They are making (laughs) making more news. And, uh, you know, you can decide for yourself. I'm not out here to tell people what to think, but they have another story. And it sounds like they're trying to shift responsibility for a coal power plant onto the Mongolian government. Originally, they were going to build it. And now they've convinced the Mongolian government to build it in some kind of new deal. And you just get the sense that Rio Tinto is trying to get this coal power plant off their books. But the reality is there's still going to be a coal power plant powering this thing. So Rio Tinto remains in the spotlight. Also, we have the second part of our feature interview with Sean Boyd from the Canadian Mining Symposium. It's a really interesting interview. He talks with Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro on growth, on the gold price, and how he sees both the industry and its outlook financially as an industry, and also his view on company culture, Ignico Eagle, and he's the CEO of Ignico Eagle. Ignico Eagle has a great reputation for their company culture. I talked to John once in a while, our former editor-in-chief, and yeah, he, he loves it over there. So a very interesting second part 
to the interview, and that was recorded at the Canadian Mining Symposium a couple of weeks ago that we held on Zoom, which by most, if not all, accounts that I've seen and heard was a huge success. So we did all the congratulations last week. We missed the sales guys, who are crucial. So thanks to Joe and Michael and George. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram, at The Northern Miner. You can find us on YouTube, where we host these podcasts, on LinkedIn and Facebook, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify. So with that, let's turn to our Mining Minute with SRK consultant Adrian Dance. And let's turn it over to Adrian Dance. Joining us once again... On the podcast for our Mining Minute is Adrian Dance, who is Principal Consultant in Metallurgy for SRK Consulting. And Adrian, tell me, are metallurgists often brought in too late in the mining process? Well, speaking selfishly, yes, I would say we're brought in too late. There, there is a distinction between if you find a deposit with metal in the ground, say copper, there's a distinction between what you find in copper and what's recoverable. So we need to find out as soon as possible if the metal is recoverable so that we can correctly identify if the project is economic. Um, so sooner we do some testing in the lab to see whether or not conventional processing will work, the earlier we can put some confidence in behind, behind what metal is in the ground and whether a deposit actually is uh, economic. Okay, so ultimately you guys help with improving grade. Is, is that fair? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the material coming out of the ground has a certain grade. We would love to, to be higher because it makes our job easier. But uh, ultimately, we're about producing a saleable product. So it need, those saleable commodities like copper, zinc, lead, they need to be a certain standard. They need to achieve a certain grade to be sold to a smelter. And if we can't achieve those expected commodity grades, then we can't sell it and therefore there's no value. We go through a series of tests in the lab to see whether or not the material can be separated. We can recover the metal of interest and we can reject the gang or the waste. And can we do that for a reasonable cost? Uh, there's increasingly uh, more expensive ways of doing things which will work. It's whether or not the ore body can sustain those costs, which is where grade comes in again. If there's only so much metal in the in the material if in grams per ton or percent, we only have so much cost that we can bear to be economic. If the grade was higher, we could incur higher costs and still be profitable. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dance. And so we will see you next week on our next Mining Minute. And that was Adrian Dance, Principal Metallurgist at SRK Consulting. You can find out more about Adrian Dance and everything SRK does at srk.com. And I will also link to Adrian Dance's profile page and to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. So look out for that. And now on to the news. Yeah, we have a few coronavirus shutdowns. Uh, uh, Trevally has suspended their Santander mine. It's a zinc-silver lead mine. And they have suspended it after 19 workers have tested positive for COVID-19. 
Interestingly, Trevally said the workers were asymptomatic. Um, nevertheless, they were put into quarantine, and this is done by Northern Miner staff. Further testing will be done at the mine, and the company did not provide a timeline for a restart. And this mine, of course, is located in Peru. And so that is one shutdown. And again, I, I would think this is the main thing. Like, it must be incredibly expensive to stop a mine. And how do you restart it? Look at these guys. They don't even know when they're restarting. So this is an issue. We're going to go to the next one. Cadelco shuts Chukicamata operation over coronavirus fears. And this is by Cecilia Jamasmi from Mining.com. Chile's Cadelco, the world's number one copper producer, has closed its Chukicamata smelter and refinery to prevent a further spread of COVID-19 among its staff following the death of a third worker this week. The move makes Chukicamata the first major copper asset to close due to the sharp spike of coronavirus cases in Chile in the last two weeks. And this is what you hear. You hear the Americas, right, are really the hot spot for coronavirus these days. The news came on the heels of the country's environmental regulator filing pollution charges against the miner over a 2016 tailing spill. The century-old copper mine is Cadelco's second largest after El Teniente. Last year, it churned out just over a quarter of the company's total production. The Chukicamata smelter, also owned by Cadelco, is one of the world's largest of its kind. And Cadelco said the measure was, quote, transitory in nature and would be, quote, gradually implemented. The company estimates around 400 people will stop working at the smelter and refinery. And if we scroll down a bit, copper output levels have held up so far in Chile, but the more than a thousand COVID-19 cases in the country's mining industry indicate that risks of further restrictions are very likely, said Colin Hamilton, an analyst at BMO Capital Markets. Despite the pandemic, Cadelco has plowed ahead with an ambitious 10-year, $40 billion overhaul of its mines to keep up production rates. On and on it goes. So you can read some more about that at northernminer.com. But yeah, it feeds into this theme of mine closures. And we have another one in Russia. Alrosa halts operations after COVID-19 outbreak. Do you see a pattern here? Uh, Cecilia Jamasmi, mining.com. Alrosa, the world's top diamond producer by output, has idled its international underground mine for up to two weeks after several employees tested positive for COVID-19. It's interesting, right? Because we hear about meatpacking plants and all these like production processing facilities for whatever reason, probably because they have a lot of people in a fairly limited space. For some reason, these are the main attractors. So mining companies, best beware. Uh, the Russian miner said it would only carry out work to ensure the safety and maintenance of the site. It noted that workers and contractors will receive compensation in accordance with labor laws. And we have a quote from Chief Executive Sergei Ivanov. Quote, the company has developed several scenarios of a quick response to the possible spread of the virus at its production sites. In order to prevent an uncontrolled outbreak of the disease and a threat to the health of our employees, the company took a number of decisions under one of the scenarios. Alrosa has arranged mass testing for everyone who works at the mine known by locals as Inter, including employees from other divisions. And the Diamond Giant said it would consider bringing workers with negative tests and no virus symptoms back to work in a week. 
And finally, last month, El Rosa had to suspend production at two other assets. That decision, however, was based on a dire state of the diamond market and not the pandemic. So El Rosa getting hit on all sides here in Russia. And we have a great picture of a Russian train there. So it's three mines shutting down. I'm sure there's a lot more, but that's what we are seeing here at the northernminer.com. Those ones stood out. Also, there was a question about the Endeavor Mining Samafo merger. The government of Canada took a closer look. And so we have an update on the Endeavor Mining Samafo merger. And again, Samafo was suffering from major security issues. And uh, Canada has approved, has given the go-ahead for Endeavor Mining to acquire Samafo, which would create West Africa's top gold producer, also by Cecilia Jamasmi. The Ministry of Innovation, Science and Industry determined there was no need for a national security review of the $1 million deal announced in March of this year. So a $1 million deal. Both companies, boards, and Endeavor shareholders have already approved the business combination, which is expected to close on or around July 1st. The transaction brings together six mines with strong cash flow into one portfolio. It also allows for asset optimization and pipeline growth. The combined gold miner will have an estimated annual production of 1 million ounces per year. And I was just reviewing the Sean Boyd interview and what's interesting about that, they're 2.2 million ounces per year. So for Endeavor to reach 1 million ounces per year is actually not terrible. Remember, Barrick and Newmont are 5 million ounces per year. So definitely, I think we could call that mid-tier, a 1 million ounce per year producer. Yeah, and finally, if we scroll down a bit, Samafo shares had lost more than 50% of their value since early November 2019 when a convoy of mine employees was attacked in eastern Burkina Faso. The ambush caused at least 37 deaths and triggered an operations halt at the Bungu mine. Yeah, that is the latest on the Endeavor Mining Samafo merger. Moving on, I don't know how many of you have been following this deep sea mining theme. Nautilus Minerals, that was actually a story I had written about very early on when I started working at the Northern Miner. This deep sea mining company, Nautilus Minerals, which I believe has gone bankrupt since, and they were trying to mine the sea floor, which is extremely controversial among environmentalists. So anyway, there's a report that was put out by the high-level panel for a sustainable ocean economy, and they say mining the seafloor opens a vast source of key metals needed for clean energy, but should not start until a full evaluation of likely environmental impacts can be made. So they are saying the environmental ramifications have not been fully explored, and the group of academics and environmentalists believe an international moratorium on deep-sea mining is urgently needed. Otherwise, they warn of likely irreversible damage to global aquatic ecosystems. In their study, the experts note that copper, rare earths, and iron ore were the resources that piqued miners' original interest in exploring the seafloor. In the past two years, however, minerals needed for a green energy transition, including cobalt and nickel, are driving a rising interest in the activity. There have been some attempts to regulate the emerging industry. Two years ago, the European Parliament called for a ban on seabed mining until the environmental impacts and risks of disturbing unique deep-sea ecosystems 
are understood. In the resolution, it also urged the European Commission to persuade member states to stop sponsoring and subsidizing licenses to explore and exploit the seabed in international waters, as well as within their own territories. There's been an international team of researchers who have published a set of criteria to help the ISA, also known as the International Seabed Authority, a UN body made up of 168 countries to protect biodiversity from deep sea mining. The ISA was scheduled to discuss regulation that could allow deep seabed mining in July. However, it was delayed to October based on the COVID-19 pandemic. And here's the real sort of standout line here. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, as the deep sea accounts for more than half the world's surface, its riches are several times higher than those found in all land reserves combined. So that statement is saying that there is more metal, there is more treasure in the ocean than on land. So these guys, are, I guess, are trying to get ahead of this. You can read the whole report on northernminer.com. And the title of the article is Plan Needed to Protect Deep Sea Life from Mining. Finally, we have a story from Haywood Securities, and they are raising their price forecast for copper and nickel. It's by Northern Miner's staff in a new research note entitled Making a Comeback. Haywood Securities' Pierre Vaillancourt has adjusted his price outlook for copper and nickel, quote, to reflect the improving economic conditions. Although the mining analyst cautions that he remains Quote, wary of the extent of the recovery. So let's talk numbers. Viancourt has raised his outlook for copper this year to $2.60 per pound from his previous $2.45 per pound. In 2021, he expects the copper price would average $2.80 per pound and $2.90 per pound in 2022 and $3 per pound in 2023. He also lifted his price forecast for nickel to $5.87 per pound in 2020 from his earlier $5.65 per pound. And finally, we just have a quote here. Since the height of the COVID pandemic, prices for base metals have rallied as fiscal and monetary measures have been implemented by national governments to revitalize the global economy. Recently, China has signaled plans to maintain liquidity in the financial system for the rest of the year raising hopes of improved demand and raising prices for metals. And here's another interesting little quote. Copper inventories in warehouses tracked by the Shanghai Futures Exchange dropped to their lowest level in 17 months with increased industrial activity as cancelled warrants have increased to levels not seen since December 2019. However, Viancourt emphasizes that uncertainty remains, and quote, China's economy has recovered to 80 to 85 percent of pre-pandemic levels, but the lack of demand reflected in falling imports and exports could hamper further recovery. Based metals remain vulnerable to a second wave of COVID-19 infections, and factory activity in the rest of the world remains depressed. Economic projections from the World Bank call for the global economy to contract by 5.2% this year, levels not seen since World War II. And the final, final quote, which is important here, demand has come back, Vayankor was saying, to 80 to 85% of pre-pandemic levels. Amazing. In China. Pretty incredible. However, the big however, and we have a quote, our concern for the price upside is that once virus-related supply constraints fade in leading producers, the copper price will be almost entirely reliant 
on China's stimulus measures for a boost in demand. If China fails to meet expectations and demand from Western economies does not recover, prices could come under pressure. So it sounds like they are saying if there is not more stimulus, prices could come under pressure. Makes pretty good sense from over here. So let's take a closer look at these metal prices. On to metal prices. like to thank our friends at infomine.com who provide us with these prices each and every week and if you ever want to find them for yourself just do a search in google of infomine and metal prices and these results will appear and on june 30th gold is trading at $1,767.97 that is $11 higher than last week's quote in an all-time high of the quotes we've been doing since last year, so gold is staying firm. Silver is at $17.84, and that is two cents lower. Maybe last September was at $18.18, so it's not at an at a one-year, 52-week high, according to our quote. But again, as they say, silver follows gold. Let's see what happens to gold. Continuing on, platinum is at $813.07 per ounce. That is $19 lower than last week's quote. And palladium is also lower at $1,906.93. That is $24 lower than last week's quote. And on June 26th, copper is at $2.72 per pound. That is seven cents higher than last week, and the onward march continues for Dr. Copper. Aluminum is unchanged at 72 cents per pound. Lead is unchanged at 81 cents per pound. Nickel is seven cents lower at $5.76 per pound. And tin is six cents higher at $7.71 per pound. Cobalt is at $12.93 per pound. That is 16 cents lower. And zinc is a penny lower at 93 cents per pound. So what do I see here? I see everything is looking strong. Gold and precious metals. I mean, really, the only thing that really doesn't look that strong were platinum and palladium, but they're also doing quite well when you look at their last 52 weeks. Platinum, especially the last, like, say, two months, Platinum was as low as $638 only two and a half months ago, three months ago. Now it's at $813.07. Palladium is holding steady. Industrial metals look quite strong. Wind at their back, consolidating and moving higher. Copper is especially a standout at $2.72 per pound. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the second part of our Canadian Mining Symposium Fireside Chat with Agnico Eagle Vice Chair and Chief Executive Officer Sean Boyd, and he is interviewed by Anthony Vaccaro, Northern Miner Group Publisher. And this is the second part of the interview, and they discuss growth, the gold price, the industry outlook, and Agnico's company culture. I hope you enjoy it, and we will see you on the other side. 
big criticism of the gold sector is this this mentality that seems to take hold during bull cycles of growth at any and all costs. Now, juxtapose against that, Ignico, you've always run it as a business. You seem to have found a way to avoid that criticism. So that puts you in a unique position, I think, to ask this question of, is there something about the gold sector that leads to this mentality of gold at, at all costs? Is there a psychological factor? Is it Was it unique to the last uh, bull run that you, or you just said where the input costs are, are the, the expected gold price you know, doubled or tripled? What's behind that? I think for all industries and all you know, significant public companies, there's always that sort of underlying pressure uh, to show growth. Um, and that pressure changes uh, based on where markets are. Uh, so I don't think it's just specific to the gold sector, although there, were, there was a mindset of empire building. Uh, the bankers were pretty clever. They knew who the empire builders were. And they kept pushing those ideas. And that really resulted in a lot of value destruction, the big M&A in the gold space. So I think companies have learned as you get bigger in the gold industry, your challenges become bigger because we're all working against nature. And nature doesn't leave too many 5 million ounce reserve deposits sitting out there. And so it's much tougher uh, to grow. And I think we saw that where we saw several of our competitors get to eight or nine million ounces of annual production and they've deconstructed their businesses and are down to five million, which they believe is more manageable. For us, we're going to go to two million, probably go to 2.2. It'll take us three, four years to get there. That's a nice, comfortable pace for us. Companies and investors that we talk to aren't looking for dramatic growth. They'd like some growth, steady growth manageable growth, but being able to execute on that growth. So I think uh, that's the formula that'll win, keep the risk down and deliver on that sort of manageable measured growth. Excellent. A reasonable growth strategy. Now you did, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going by memory on this, but you had that really impressive run, I believe from around 2010 to 2015, when it was, I think, five mines under construction, all done by Agnico. You just contract these out to get built. Uh, you can correct me if I have the numbers slightly off there. What uh, is that sort of strategy? Take us behind that a little bit. Why was it important for Agnico to build those mines and to have such an aggressive growth strategy? And how did that feed into how you view growth going forward? Well, there was a period of time when we were one mine, and that was Laronde, and Laronde was basically carrying everything. And although a, a great mine, and it'll probably ultimately mine out, as the largest gold-bearing mass of sulfide in the history of the world, likely exceeding the horn mine that built Naranda. So we had built over years, not just a high-quality operation, but we developed a really broad range of skills. And we needed to diversify. We couldn't just you know, put that investment case forward and have that single mine risk. So we started to uh, build a platform of mines. But we did take on maybe a little bit too much doing five, but if you look at where some of them were, there were two within 30 miles of Laronde in our backyard. Uh, we did build Meadowbank. That was the fifth mine. Maybe that was a little too much at the time, but we managed through it. We had to do some tidying up at the end. We're pretty resilient. I think the key, though, was is that we bought those assets at a very good price, and we were basically taking advantage of what we saw as a lot of geological potential. And that's proven out because several of those mines are some of our biggest cash contributors today. So that decision was the right one. 
I think the key for us, though, is that that was growth that actually added a lot of value and added a lot of per share value. So sometimes it's easy to grow. It's tougher to grow and do it in a way where you're adding per share value. And because we own those assets and bought them cheaply and were able to add ounces, we were confident that we could get them built and add a lot of per share value. I'd like to move a little bit into the gold price itself. It is incredibly topical right now. Central banks are buyers again in a way they have not been in many, many decades. What do you think that means and is it relevant? Should gold investors be taking note of that? Is this a key factor of demand that can continue to drive gold prices? It's one of the pieces. I think what investors are really looking at is they certainly look at supply and demand and what drives the price are investors. Certainly, it's important to have central banks who control the printing presses, not only wanting more gold, uh, many of them want it very close. They want it home. They want it next to them. I think which tells you a lot about maybe the view on paper as we go forward. Um, but the key will be is what is investors' appetite for gold? That will be ultimately the driver uh, for the gold price. And I think when you look at it, what we've been seeing, and we've been saying this for the last three years, and it actually fits the profile of how we feel investors think about gold. We started to see renewed interest in gold three years ago in Europe. Well, they kind of get it. They have a history of wanting gold. They know it. Uh, we also saw that in Asia. The last market that actually catches on when gold is moving is the U.S. market. And hmm. the U.S. investor, for the most part, doesn't really see a need for gold in the portfolio. They look at the strength of the U.S. dollar, the strength of the U.S. equity markets, the ultimate confidence in the U.S. economy. And in large part, it's, you know, gold's interesting, but we don't need it. But there are periods when they decide they not only need it, they want to own a lot of it. And I think we're starting to get into that period. And that's why we've been saying for a couple of years now that in this cycle, we will see the gold price hit a new high in U.S. dollars. It's hit a new high in every other major currency. Let's stay with that a bit. It is, it's a very interesting factor that the States is last to come on, but also often that's where the biggest pools of capital are sitting. So it can really provide that torque and just push gold into territories that the generalists don't really expect. Right now, I'm going to do a bit of name dropping because I think this is exciting for the gold industry and for gold producers. Big hedge fund managers down in New York, Paul Tudor Jones, Jeff Gunlock, Mark Morbius, Ray Dalio, they're all right now very, well, Dalio's been there for a little bit now, they're all very constructive on gold. And the interesting point that with those, there's other hedge fund managers that are as well, but the interesting one with those ones is they've all become famous for very different investment strategies. So they're coming at the gold thesis all from very different points. How much faith do you personally draw from those kind of big names south of the border moving in? And was there a similar movement early in the last bull run? I think you have to pay attention to that. I can't recall whether these similar names were pushing gold. Certainly hedge funds uh, were on it and were buying gold through the GLD uh, during that last run-up, I think was important. So I would take this as a sign that the U.S. market is now uh, realizing that they need to pay attention uh, to gold and the high quality gold equity. So I would see it as a positive and I would see it as the start of a renewed interest in gold among U.S. investors. And Sean, in that last run that we had, again, going back to the last bull run, 
it was interesting because you could argue that it, it put a lie to the myth that gold, you know, we always hear gold's a safe haven or gold's anti-inflation or gold's only when the U.S. dollar is weak. But in the last gold run, gold price at the end of each year was up for 12 consecutive years. And over that time, the stories were changing. It was sometimes it was a strong U.S. dollar story. Sometimes it was a weak. Sometimes it was inflation. Sometimes it was deflation. There was all sorts of different lead investment theses, but gold kept ticking up. What, in your estimation, you've been in this industry a long time now, what really does drive the gold price? I think we're in a condition now where when interest rates are low and real interest rates are low, it's very positive for gold because there's no opportunity cost. Where gold runs into headwinds is when interest rates are high and there's a big opportunity cost to hold gold. And in that last run, when interest rates were high, we had a lot of the gold producers taking advantage of that high interest rate and that spread between gold lease rates and interest rates to bring future production forward and selling it on the market. So we don't have that right now. So we've got the, the underlying conditions now. I think another thing that's interesting is happening now is the bond market looks like it's not going to be a good place to be for a while. And traditionally, that's where a lot of people hid out or they were sort of hanging out there when equity markets were choppy. So equity investors, when they look at a market that could be volatile, are looking for other places to wait it out. And gold has certainly stepped up at the right time, uh, given that the bond market uh, is struggling and people can't see a lot of potential for good returns or solid returns there. So I think the gold market's in this perfect spot. I think the other thing is really uncertainty and insurance and wealth preservation. If you go back to the late 90s, and we know this measure because we we run these numbers because most of us got our current roles at Agnico in 1998, and many of us are still working together. Over that period since 1998, the annual return on gold has been about uh, 8%. For the S&P 500, it's been about 5%. For the XAU, it's been about 3%. So gold equities as a group have lagged. Agnico's performance annualized return is 13%. So getting back to this point, you can actually build a gold business and do it over a fairly lengthy period of time as you manage risk and make measured bets and actually focus on keeping your share count down by taking geological bets and understanding things are a certain size when you buy it, but you have a pretty good sense they're going to get bigger. And so I think that's the position we're in now is investors look at the gold space um, and they say, yeah, but it may be like 12 years ago where you're going to dangle that carrot in front of us. And then all of a sudden you're going to uh, not deliver the margin expansion. Now, I think the industry is well positioned uh, to do that. The gold equities aren't reflecting a 1700 gold price. Gold price is likely going to go higher in U.S. dollars. Uh, the cash generated in the business at 1700 is dramatic. And it kind of reminds me a bit that we're in one of these phases that were sort of like 7980. I remember walking into Ignico Eagle back in 1983 as an auditor. I was working for Clarkson Gordon. And I marveled at how much cash such a small company had relative to its market cap. And it was cash that was built up when gold ran to $800. And it's kind of funny that 1983 is when Ignico initiated its dividend, first dividend payment. 
1983, and we've paid one ever since. So I think we're in this period now where the gold industry is going to have some of its best historical returns, the gold mining industry. And given the damage that some of the other industries have seen over the last three months, unfortunately, the gold business should have some of its best relative performance against a lot of other industries. And the gold equities aren't even reflecting the current price. So at 2000, there's a huge opportunity, 2000 gold in these gold equities. You're feeling pretty good where you sit right now. Yeah, we were bullish last year on gold. We're more bullish now. Sean, let's take it a little bit. You've alluded to the, the longevity with the Agnico team. A lot of the people in positions since 1998. Of course, the storied history of Paul Penna before that. It's a corporate culture that is built on uh, integrity, generosity, building the right team environment. You steered it so well over all these years. I'd like to take people a little bit. People want to know who the, who the leader is and a little bit about yourself. I'd like to have a couple questions about you as, as a leader. You don't come from a mining family. You, your late father, you've in the past said, is one of the people that you've admired most in your life. He was a police officer in Toronto. Can you talk to us a little bit about the values that your father and your parents instilled in you that helped you to become the company builder that you are today? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think from um, as a police officer, I think what we saw as, as kids is... Um, even outside the job, my dad was always out there uh, helping people. And those were people he would have encountered you know, sort of on duty. And uh, after he passed away, I had an opportunity to sort of go through a bunch of boxes he had put together. And there was just many, many letters from people that he had helped over the years outside of his work as a policeman or even while as a policeman. So I think the first thing that attracted me to Ignico is when I walked in the door was it was a giving culture. First time I met Paul Penna, I was actually sitting at the table, which was Ignico's boardroom table, which happens to be in my office. And Paul Penna walked in and introduced myself. And I commented that he had a nice briefcase. It was a nice brown briefcase, looked relatively new. He took his papers out of it and gave it to me. And I said, look, I can't take that. I'm an auditor. I didn't say that because I wanted the briefcase. Uh, he says, no, no, have the briefcase. I got lots of briefcases, have the briefcase. Um, one time I made the mistake of saying I like lemon meringue pies. The next morning he was in with 10 pies for everyone in the office. So he did much more profound giving. He knew the names of all the street people in the vicinity of the office in downtown Toronto. Um, so it's a giving culture. And I think that's uh, what attracted me to Ignico. Great people. Yeah, we have to run a high-quality business. The business has to be profitable. But if you're running a high-quality business that's profitable, you can do so many good things in the community or for your employees. And that's our mission statement. That hasn't changed for decades. The mission statement is to generate above-average returns for our shareholders, but also to make it a great place to work for our employees and also to make a great and a big contribution to the communities that we operate in. So we're lucky. And that's why we're pretty proud. We've been able to tick all those three boxes consistently over a long time. I think that kind of takes my next question and answers it. I was going to ask what key values you'd want to pass on to the next generation. You've, you've just hit upon something. Is there anything else you, you would add to that? I think culture is clearly a big part of our success. I think it's culture. It's also um, that long-term thinking, which embodies our strategy 
and sticking to a strategy that works. But I think for young people, um, as uh, we see them develop, is my advice is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to make decisions. You see too many young people, they're afraid to make a call. No, we're paying you. And our owners are paying us to make decisions. And they're not always going to be good decisions. You know, we've done some strange things at Ignico. We've face-planted hard a few times. But you make those decisions with the full confidence you've got backup. You've got great teams. Um, and for us, we've had that resiliency. And that's why we're not afraid to make decisions. That's why we're not afraid to build five mines at the same time. Because uh, mining's tough. It's not perfect. But if you've got high-quality people that know your stuff, you can bounce back pretty quickly. Sean, we're, we're coming to the conclusion here. If you're up for it, I'd like to play a bit of a fun game. It's a game that I saw on Financial Times way back, I don't know, eight years ago or so. They seem to have stopped doing it. I think it's a, it's a fun game to play. It's kind of, it can be kind of revealing. It's called Bull or Bear. And the idea here is I'm going to list off five kind of general topics, and you're going to tell us whether you're bullish or bearish on what I put forward. Are you, are you up for yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right, let's dive in here in rapid fire succession. You Feel free to expand or not expand. You can just, yeah. it's, it's in your corner. First one, the US dollar, bullish or bearish? Uh, bearish. COVID-19 vaccine in less than 12 months. I think I'm bearish. I think there's still a lot of things that we don't know about this virus. It's not an easy one. China as the world's imminent superpower. Bearish. Uh, you know, my sense is lots of potential, uh, but you can't realize that potential if, you, if you're not allowing your people to express themselves and be free. A V-shaped economic recovery. Bearish. The economy's <coughs> in tough shape. Uh, I see it from personal experience with people I know uh, and places they work, um, and the places they work um, are really struggling. So it's going to take a while to get things back in shape. I'm keeping score, Sean. That's four bearish remarks. Not less good. People, less people think you're a cynic. I'm bullish on gold, one. though. <laughs> well, that's true. We know how to help, so. Here's the last one. The Leafs going far in a new playoff format. So this is a tough one because I want to be bullish, and I work in an office where there's a lot of Habs fans. Here's my view, and it's from a person that's gathered the family, my wife and four kids, and drove 1,400 miles to watch a playoff game once. Uh, so we're big fans. I don't think this team has demonstrated the character and grit to win four playoff rounds. Not yet. There is work to do, unfortunately. Always the pragmatist. As a Leaf fan, I would, I'm, sadly, I have to agree. They're not there yet. But at least no. they're showing some potential. They can get yes. that character. At least we're in. And there are teams that right. people in our office support that aren't in. So. There you go. We'll take that as Leaf fans. Absolutely. Uh, a couple questions here from the audience, Sean. First one, has your perception of the political risk in Mexico, great question, changed in the last two years? Does Agnico Eagle Mines have any expansion plans there? You got to get behind the headlines in Mexico and uh, you have to go in there with an open mind and you have to look not really what's said, but actually what they're doing. And our people would say, that this government has been more pro-mining than previous governments. And just by their actions, they were elected, but before they took office, they sent a delegation of senior people into Canada, into Quebec, and they visited mines like Ignico's, and they visited 
other Canadian gold companies who operated also in Mexico. And they were trying to get a sense of whether we were doing things differently from country to country. And you don't do that if you're not sort of uh, supportive of mining or, or see mining as an important part of the business. The individual that runs the Secretary of the Economy for Mining, they're based in northern Mexico where a lot of the mines are. So they've actually taken very proactive steps to be very supportive of mining. And recently, they basically shut down most industries for April and May, and they allowed mining to start earlier on May the 18th. So it's still important. I think they realize the economic benefits of mining, and we've been very positive. Do we have expansion plans there? I think that's the challenge. That's our strategic challenge, or one of them at Ignico, is to find enough high-quality opportunities in Mexico to grow that business. Right now, we're focused on satellite opportunities. We've got a few projects. We're doing exploration. But it's not an easy place in terms of looking for things that actually can move the needle for our business in Mexico. Thank you for that. One last question. Uh, we are running out of time, so I'm going to have to, it's a bit of a long and it's a bit of a technical question. I'm going to summarize it a little bit here. It's around the idea of NPV as a key metric for assessing investment in a company or a project. And around the idea that if you, you can raise your NPV by raising the, the cutoff grade, disregarding the amount of metal that could actually be left in the ground. I guess just to kind of boil it down and distill it, in that kind of context, should MPV be the main driver for an investor to take part in an investment? Uh, no, um, because it's tough to factor in um, geological potential. If NPV was the primary driver for our investment decisions over the last 25 years, we wouldn't be in the position we were in. Laurent's initial decision on going into production had a rate of return that was mid-single digits. Uh, that wouldn't cut it today. But what we saw was tremendous potential. We needed to get the platform built. We find that the most value tends to get created once the mine is built. And then you can focus on using your knowledge uh, to add really important critical value. So it's important. But if you look at it from a corporate level, the biggest knock on Ignico since I've been around is you're too expensive. You're trading at a high multiple to NAV. So I'd rather buy something that's trading at less, but you get what you pay for. So sometimes you have to pay for quality. And so, yeah, you should throw it in the mix. It is a factor. But we think uh, what we use is feel for geological potential, net free cash flow, longevity of the asset over time. And are those assets well matched to your skill set to be able to realize on the potential that you see? And sometimes you can't capture that in an NAV analysis. Great. I, I'm going to sneak one quick one in here because it just got in under the wire. I think it's an important one. How is phase two extension at Meliadine going? Is it being delayed by COVID-19? Uh, no, it's not. In fact, we're developing the pits. Uh, we've pumped out the third mining horizon at Meliadine. We'll start developing in that third mining horizon in July. That's a higher grade mining horizon. Meliadine is going to increase its throughput in Q4 to 4,600 tons a day, ultimately go to 6,000 tons a day. It's only been in commercial production for about a year. Uh, we fixed the issue we had in Q1 in terms of the apron feeder to feed the crushing system. And that mine has never been in a better position in terms of the underground and how it's set to deliver uh, tonnage going forward. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time, for being as candid as you always are and forthcoming. 
with your answers and your insights. We really appreciate it. Thank you for being a part of the Canadian Mining Symposium. We wish you and your team at Agnico and your family all the success the rest of the year going forward. Thanks, Anthony. Really enjoyed that. Thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again on the Northern Matter Podcast. We're on episode 193. We're veering in on 200 episodes. That is only less than two months away. So thank you once again for joining us. If you want to help the podcast, leave us a five-star review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.